Hello and welcome to another special episode of Casey Piper's Extraordinary People. In the last episode, we looked back at some of the most uplifting and inspiring moments from the podcast so far. That's partly because it's two years since we began and partly because we all need a little bit of a lift right now. Lots of you tweeted me last time to say you got so much out of the last episode and it was hard to pick which moments to include. So I'm back with more memorable moments from the two years of Extraordinary People. In this episode, we'll be hearing from writer Bella Mackey, the late TV presenter EJ Osborne, writer and actress Jamila Jamil, and recovering addict DJ Fat Tony. I'd like to ask you to introduce yourself. Um, if that's okay. Okay, yeah, gosh. Um, so I am Bella and I uh, was a journalist for 12 years and not very extraordinary at all, really. And I recently wrote a book called Jog On, which is about um, anxiety and depression and obsessive compulsive disorder and how I was sort of afflicted with these things throughout my life. And And then I found running, which helped me kind of not cure those things because obviously you can't cure mental health problems but really lessen those those things for me and and allow me to live like a full and happier life and I think what's extraordinary for me is that the reaction has been sort of so overwhelming um Sunday Times bestseller yeah and was it was it like with Michelle Obama she was Michelle Obama was number one I was number two I'm okay with that like I will take (laughs) it yeah I was like that's fine Miss Miss Obama can be number one that's fine um, but yeah, like the feedback from people who mm. kind of have found exercise to be a similarly helpful thing or from people who want to try it or, you know, a bit a bit further down the road now, you know, people who said, I've started running because of your book mm. and I feel so much better. So, yeah, for me, that's just been the most incredible thing ever. You are really... Um well, I've listened to lots of interviews with you and you're very authentic. Um, you're not kind of fluffy, you know, you're yeah, quite yeah. matter-of-fact about things. And some of the books I've written, I dread promoting, which sounds really bad, but like when they are revealing and it's good to be revealing in the right context, mm. but then if you have to do an interview of a red-top tabloid and they're going to take a line yeah. out of context. And, you know, and, and if you do have anxiety, sometimes the build-up to that promo can give you more anxiety. Oh, my God. In January, I was a complete mess. I was yeah. crying constantly. I can see, yeah. I was sort of having, you know really intrusive thoughts about stuff I was I was a complete mess because Mm -hmm. of the promo and the reaction and like you say you know you write something and then actually the promo is completely different because it's out of your hands then and you're as you say someone can turn one line into the kind of main story or yeah but also you know having to explain over and over and over again your story you know it's not good for you no it's not good for (laughs) you you know unless you're doing it with a therapist you know it's not actually very helpful for you as a person but what I guess you're hoping is that you help other people in the process which is kind of what you've got to remember and hold on to yeah because am, am I right in saying your difficult times were primarily in your 20s yeah, is yeah, that right yeah, definitely, yeah. so that was the same for me and, and a lot of the stuff I read about you reminded me of myself of like I um, was single for a long time in my 20s originally I thought by choice then when I changed my mind it, it wasn't by choice and it was lonely and it was difficult yeah. um, and I became depressed and anxious and running really helped me yeah. um, and I wondered what it's like on reflection now looking at your 20s because my friends were like getting mortgages they were getting married they were talking about kids and I was just like 
drinking, running, not running, being depressed, staying at home for long, long periods all the time. And it's a different, you know, people look back and they say, time of my life, my 20s. Yeah. I'm like, never want to go back. No, me neither. And I also, I feel exactly the same way. I think my 20s were like this period of like messy, lonely, you know, feeling like I was not at the same stage as everyone else, feeling like I needed to catch up. And I got married when I was 20. Eight, twenty nine, I can't even remember now. Right. Because, you know, partly because I was like, Oh God, you know, I'm 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 wasting my life, you know, I'm mm. not I'm I'm, behind, I'm I need to catch up with everyone and blah blah blah. What like up up until then, like what had your home life been like? Were your parents together? Yeah, yeah. my parents were together. Yeah. Um but because I was so anxious in my twenties, I hadn't like gone out of London for uni. Mm. I hadn't left my parents' house till I was I didn't move out until I was twenty six. Okay. Um so I was really kind of tied to to this very small area, you know, mm. sort of mentally and physically. I couldn't really break free of anything. Yeah. Um, and so I sort of just sat there feeling quite like everyone else is doing stuff, spreading their wings, yeah. you know, growing, and I am stuck here sort of too scared to, you know, live away from my family. Um, because it felt overwhelming. Yeah, I just, I just couldn't. You know? Yeah. I mean, I just didn't have the tools to do it. I was just completely sort of locked into this spiral of, like, anxiety and depression. So, so yeah, I just, I mean, there wouldn't have been a hope in hell of me doing that, really. And all that's so invisible. Oh, completely. Do you know, like, if you'd been the friend that had had a physical, visible difference mm. or disability, then there might have been more open conversation around that. But other people might have just thought, are you shy? Are you lazy? Are you defiant? Mm. You know, it could be so confused, you know. Completely that. So either you're sort of shy and lazy or... It's like, oh, Bella's funny. You know, she's great. She's doing really well. She's fine. Mm. Did you did you ever feel that in social situations, you know, and that British, like, how are you? And to be like, I'm great. And just, mm. you know. Yeah. And I mean, especially since the book has come out, I feel like, how am I allowed to be, like, to feel sad or anxious? Mm. And does that mean that, you know, my book is a lie? You know, that yeah, I sort yeah, of, yeah. I've I sold that. people a fraud? You yeah. Know? Yeah, exactly. This idea that you've sort of written something you hope is kind of, in some way motivational helpful yeah but you also want to be able to say oh no actually today is terrible you know I've had an awful day and I feel like you know rubbish we have to be able to say like you can know about this stuff and have made progress and have some advice mm. and it's also an ongoing process for you for the rest of your life you know yeah of course We have never met before. We haven't. Um, but I suppose, as with all kind of social media platforms, I feel like I know a, a small bit about you from what you post on Instagram. And what becomes apparent from your account straight away is you're super talented with your woodwork. Oh, you're very kind, Oh, it's Katie. amazing. I was like, is this just stock photography? Does he really make this stuff? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Recently, you used that platform for something um, quite out of the ordinary of, of, of what you normally post. Um, for anyone that hasn't seen this hashtag, it's the 10-year challenge. I took part in it as well, where you posted a present-day photo of you and one of you 10 years ago. And not everybody, but a lot of people took it as a chance to be quite boasty and narcissistic, to kind of show photos where their body looked better and they hadn't gained weight or they'd lost weight or their faces didn't look wrinkly, even though our faces do get wrinkly, you know, <laughs> 10 years on. Um, and it kind of annoyed me because it started shaming people into like, oh, I can't really post one because I don't look better or I look worse or I look the same. But I really admired what you used the hashtag for. Yeah. So you got a big reaction. Can you <laughs> can you tell the listeners who haven't seen your post what you did? So I, I've been laid up in bed with flu, actually, and I kept seeing 
the 10-year challenge, hashtag, you know, because I was on social media scrolling fl- through. It got quite big, It got it? big, it got big. And like you, I was like, no, oh, come on, you know, this, this. there were a few good ones, yeah, but a lot of it looked sort of quite vacuous to me. Mm-hmm. And I thought, ah, right, come on, I got one. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it was with thought because I have been thinking for quite some time that... You know, I kind of, I've got a very privileged life. I'm really lucky. You know, I've got a house, I'm married, we've got a daughter, I've got my own business, I've got this great TV job. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I also happen to be transgender. Mm-hmm. And um, I Is never... this something that was a secret? No, no, uh, not at all. It's never been a secret. Mm -hmm. But I am not a um, kind of skip down the street with flags, blowing whistles kind of person. I just get on with my life, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's no secret at all. Everybody around me knows, friends, family. Um, I just don't really talk about it. Mm -hmm. But this 10-year challenge really inspired me because I thought, hang on a minute. You know, I've also being around on social media and every time I pop my head out of my quite privileged bubble, Mm -hmm. you know, granted it is kind of online that I see more of this, but I'm like, wow, it's hard out there. There's Mm -hmm. there's hate going on, there's all kinds of stuff going on with, you know, um, minority groups and Mm -hmm. people, you know, that really need some help. And I just thought, right, I think that, visibility is so important for marginalised groups. Mm -hmm. And although I don't think I have anything particularly amazing to give, I thought, you know what, I'm going to hold my hand up a bit more publicly because if I just do that and go, hi, look, over here, you know, I'm doing this, that and the other, you know, I've got a wife, got a child, you you too, you can have a house, you Mm -hmm. can be happy, you can have laughter in your life Mm -hmm. every day. Did your followers and the people that watch you on telly, was it a known thing about you, ahead of you posting that? I think um, some people uh, put it together because I'm only a few clicks away on Google. Because me sat opposite you now, I would not know that no. without oh, your tenure. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Although I'm blind in one eye, so that's not a good testament. But, yeah. uh, well, <laughs> but it's you know, not apparent is what I mean, Yeah, you know, without you posting yeah. that. Yeah. You know, I did think about it. I thought, oh, my God, what, what kind of can of worms is this going to open? Because mm-hmm. it's all very well doing something for the good of the people. Mm-hmm. But as well, I have to weigh it up. Yeah, and you've got, your own, and you've got your public life, you've got your private life. Exactly. But you know what? I am so comfortable with who I am that it really doesn't matter. My history... It's quite colourful, it's quite rich, and I'm quite proud of that history. So what a nice description. I don't care. <laughs> you know, because I'd be like, oh, my history's dodgy. No, you know, that's like a really great way to re- reframe it. Colourful and rich. Um, yeah, it's, 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 I can't have this without having that. So why, mm-hmm. why should I be ashamed? And also, to me, knowledge is power. So mm-hmm. when I first started appearing on telly, I did, again, have a brief kind of, you know, oh, I'm only a few clicks away on Google from people knowing my past. Yeah, because when you do stuff in the public eye, you have to be prepared for everything yeah. in your past to possibly be broadcasted. Yeah. But then, you know, it's I'm just like, no way. You know, I'm doing this. I've worked hard yeah. for this opportunity and I am taking it because if I don't take opportunities because of fear... Mm. Um, what was the fear? Fear of the unknown. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, what... 
is going to happen, I'm, I will be extremely exposed. Mm. Um, but actually, my workaround is always just to be fabulous. Mm-hmm. Keep okay. on going. Yeah. So Pave you did... the way and just I'm just having it. And just, well, no, but, it's, but it's just authentically you, isn't it? It is. That's the it thing. Is. There is no kind it of farce or... No. no kind of, I mean, when you did do this 10-year challenge... You know, Instagram, people can write what they want. What was the response like in the comments? Amazing. I kind of stayed up way past midnight watching these. We've all been like, right, my thumb was (laughs) hovering over that delete button. I was like, there's going to be some stuff. But actually, it was amazing. I mean, my Instagram is largely focused on and always has been Mm. craft my mm-hmm. craft, what I do. I very rarely post selfies and stuff because it's all about my work. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there, there, was, there were certain things that I was like, oh, this is, this is really going to kind of open it out, was using the hashtag transgender. Because mm-hmm. usually my hashtags are like walnutwood, yeah. forest, <laughs> axe, knife. Slightly you know. more colourful than walnutwood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I thought this is going to reach a, a potentially a larger audience anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so I better stay up and monitor the situation because I don't want any hate on there. Mm-hmm. There's nothing anyone can say to me that would be anything I haven't already thought of. And, you know, have you been fighting this battle all your life? Like, what what was your family set up? Like, how easy was it to transition? Well, um, God, that's a big question, Casey. It is, <laughs> and we've got 50 minutes. So, let me see if I can uh, condense that a little bit. Um, I feel quite lucky in one sense. I mean, I like to always see the positives. Do you believe in luck? Do you you really think luck is a... Uh, I believe in opportunities. Okay. And I believe in... I feel really quite lucky that I can take opportunities and make them into something. I think it's quite entrepreneurial in in a sense. Well, that's your hard work. That's you seeing an opportunity and having the confidence to go and, you know, turn it into something good and and essentially the hard work. Mm. Also from something else. How did we get here? With Claudia Winkleman and Professor Tanya Byron. In these in-depth one-on-one therapy sessions, we dig deep into personal stories with fascinating and emotional revelations. A passionate, insightful and moving experience with clear outcomes to each episode. He is as anxious about attachment with you as you are with him. Oh, wow. That's crazy, isn't it? Oh, that's a weird feeling. Wait, so... Oh, God. Don't you just feel like, whoa, why didn't I know that all along? Listen now in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all good podcast apps. When I think about you, right, you really put yourself out there and you don't shy away from anything. And actually, sometimes people don't get you, particularly, you know, we talked about Twitter earlier. On Twitter, you get shamed back by people that have totally missed the mark, right? And then also we're in quite a dangerous environment at the moment where cancel culture is a thing, particularly for women who make one mistake. It's not like offering to educate them and help them. It's like they're over, their career's over, they're they're sexist, they're racist, they're homophobic. So every time you do put yourself out there, you risk your professional career and you could just really carry on with your career and stop all this. Yeah. How do you feel when people get it completely wrong and, and shame and try to cancel you? 
Well, because I'm old, uh, at least, I'm like, I've been around a really long time. I've watched this cycle before. You build a woman mm-hmm. up, build a woman up, over it, like, and then we, we love her, we love her, we love her. She's a saint. She's a genius. She's amazing. She's an intellectual. She's our saviour. Um, and it's always the same pattern of obsess- obsession with a certain woman. And then mm-hmm. we overexpose her. We write about her so often that people become sick of her. And then that's pr- that means she's primed for the takedown. So it's she's a cycle a of woman. like, yeah, it's a cycle of like a year. As soon as a woman steps out or sticks out in any way, even if she's just winning an award, even if she's Anne Hathaway on a great award run, like that, that's it. We'll just build her up, build her up, build her up, rip her down. Um, but Meghan Markle was the number one case of this. If everyone was so obsessed, so obsessed, so obsessed, then mm-hmm. they get engaged. You could see it. You knew it was going to happen. You could tell. Of course you do. Well, we've been in this business long enough to know that that is just the, the pattern. So when I was on my, like, second come up you know where I kind of had this renaissance of my career and suddenly I came to America and started all over again uh, when they were saying that oh she's the feminist hero we need or she's a great intellectual I was like mm, I left school at 16 so I don't know what the fuck you're talking <laughs> about and also oh this is going to be shit because I know what this is I know that mm-hmm. I'm being this is the uh, this is this is me being pushed up onto a pedestal that's actually just a slide that goes mm-hmm. straight down into a bin of shit. Um, yeah. And so I, it wasn't, it's not too traumatic for me. I expect that. As a woman who speaks out, I threaten the patriarchy. I threaten a multi, multi-billion dollar industry, the diet industry. Of course, there are people out there planting lies and smear campaigns about me. I'm mm-hmm. also very outspoken about abortion rights. Mm-hmm. So I'm, of course, they need to silence me and they're not allowed to kill us anymore like they used to not that mm-hmm. long ago uh we can't just go missing uh they have to kill our credibility and our reputation so discredit is the new death and if you look back you really think about all the times all the women that you don't like in this industry think about why there might be a real reason but are you basing this off an interview that she gave in which the interviewer 100 percent stitched her the fuck up because that happens yeah. to me all the time. Uh, strategic, or, yeah. Or is it the way that she's written about? Is it that a source says that she's a diva? You know, all mm-hmm. of these different classic tropes. I really have started to look into every woman that I'm like, mm, I don't really like her, I don't know why. And just thought, where did that come from? Who poisoned me? What? How did the framing of this woman in the media's eye frame her? And do I hate her because I've been poisoned by these toxic lies? And mm-hmm. having been you on the receiving exactly, and being yeah. and being on the receiving end of having all of my words twisted, taken out of context, having female journalists completely obliterate everything I've said in an interview and craft it to make me look like as much of a knob and as much of a mm-hmm. conceited, conceited like ignorant asshole as possible. Now I know what it feels like to have everything you do and say twisted and taken out of context. I now have so much more sympathy to all of the women that I've ever raised an eyebrow at in the past. Well, yeah, because you understand. Now, uh-huh. Do you think then you're uncancelable? We are all uncancelable, or at least m- m- most of us are. Women, okay, let me just think about this. So cancel culture is a really important but nuanced conversation. Actual mm-hmm. cancellation almost never happens, and it sure as shit doesn't happen to privileged people. Unprivileged mm-hmm. people are the ones who get cancelled. They actually lose their jobs. They actually mm-hmm. lose their housing and become homeless. Privileged people are normally so used to being just glorified and adored and worshipped for every single thing they do or say, like a round of applause for every queef that they can pull out or fart. Like they're not, they're not used to 
people ever criticizing them. So when they get called out, they think that's them being canceled. It's like no yeah. one is deplatforming you. To be canceled means you're having your job taken away, your rights taken away, your voice mm-hmm. taken away, your you're money gone. taken yeah. away. You're gone. Mm-hmm. That rarely happens. If you really look at all the people who've been quote unquote canceled, it's like who mm-hmm. the fuck's going to cancel J.K. Rowling? She's a billionaire. She can mm-hmm. start her own publishing company if she wants to. It's not and relevant to her. Yeah. No. And everyone, you know, I think people thought that they'd cancelled me in February because this fucking weird rumour started that I have Munchausen and I've lied about cancer and I've lied about mm-hmm. being queer and I've, and I've, you know, contributed to the death of Caroline Flack, which I had nothing to do with and I adored her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we just had one yeah. spat on Twitter for five minutes a year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, people think I was cancelled. But I wasn't. All my shows got picked up. I've just landed a campaign. Like, I've still got my podcast. There is an element of choosing to cancel yourself. And women, Mm, way more often than men, take that option. So, you know, there's been a kind of big clear out this year of, like, everyone finding out how racist or misogynist or problematic a lot of massive companies are. If -hmm. you look at it statistically, it's almost exclusively women CEOs who've stepped down. Mm Mm-hmm. Men yeah, just, it's a whole different ego thing and it's just a yeah it's a completely different mindset for women I think and we're and so used to bowing out anyway so exactly and, and women choose to step back it's like when we get shamed sometimes we just think oh my god well then you know they all want me to leave so I should just leave no don't leave just get better mm-hmm. do better mm-hmm. yeah people are allowed to learn and move on and improve yeah and, and I never had it's gone. No, gone. You talked about Caroline there and, you know, what her yeah. legacy was, was leaving that kind of be kind thing. And you've done all this work. Like, do you think people are being kind? Do you think the work you've done, like, have you seen an improvement? Like, so it, like you said, over a million followers in your account. And I remember when you first started it, there wouldn't be a day that didn't go by where I wouldn't see a member of the public doing your I way thing. So mm-hmm. it feels like it's touched enough people and you see the be kind hashtag everywhere. Like, has it had a positive change? I don't know. Like I wasn't really part of the be kind movement because I, I guess my particular movement, I believe kindness is obviously important, but I also think some people need to be held to task. And I think be kind can be used to stop people from criticizing each other. Mm-hmm. So for I'd say my particular movement is be better. I do, do you think I, be kind is bad again? Do you think it's like stopping no, that freedom of speech then? I don't think it's stopping that freedom of speech. I think kindness is always an important quality, but I don't think we've seen that post-Caroline. I mean, post-Caroline, everyone piled onto me that same week. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So And hard. then they missed that irony. They completely missed that irony of... People were telling me to kill myself. And where do you go? Do you go to a bad place when you get this? I, I, I went to a bad place over the Caroline thing and also the Munchausen's thing because when you've been sick your whole life and you've been in pain mm-hmm. your whole life, every day since I was born, I've been in pain. I go to bed swollen every night of my life, um, all over my body. Uh, mm-hmm. It's very, very hard to be gaslit on a global scale. Or to <laughs> dismiss your whole experience like that. It's so damaging. Like, it's, it does if you've feel, suffered. Like, yeah. It was, it I mean, was that's like, like being told you weren't raped when you're raped, you know. And exactly. And, you know, I've, I, I remember being doubted uh, over child abuse allegations. Like when I, you know, I finally told a family member that I've been abused as a child and the men in the family refused to believe me. The women did, the men didn't. And it mm-hmm. felt exactly the same. It re-triggered that exact feeling of being mm-hmm. a kid telling someone that I'd been abused and not being mm. heard over it. Um, and being laughed at and mocked or blamed somehow for it, you know. And so 
that was hard. I think I'm, I'm absolutely fine. I'm weirdly fine with being called out, criticized for things that I've done, but it is, it's a very hard, hard pill to swallow being criticized for things that you haven't done. But again, that's the system because they haven't got enough actual shit on me. They have to make shit up to try to destroy me and try Mm -hmm. to embarrass me so that I will kill my own career. They want mm-hmm. me to step back and be like, okay, I guess I should leave social media then. And I guess mm-hmm. I shouldn't be on this TV show because it'll annoy everyone. And maybe I should just stop acting and just go. Um, yeah. No. <laughs> that that would be out- perfect for some people, though. That would be the thing that would sell the magazines and the story to tell. And It would be like New Year's Eve for the diet industry. <clears throat> I'm not fucking going anywhere. <laughs> Look, I have a lot to learn and I'm not afraid of learning it. I'm not afraid of learning it publicly. And that's mm. everything I stand for as a kind of anti-celebrity. You might not know the name Tony Manesh, but you will know the name DJ Fat Tony. He's worked with the likes of Prince, Madonna, The Beckhams, Jay-Z, Elton John, to name just a few. However, through stratospheric highs, he's also dealt with the lows. Facing addiction in an industry where excess is everywhere, He's been sober since 2006, and in the time since, he has continued to reign as king of the clubs. Well, until lockdown happened. So how does a DJ keep busy when all the clubs are shut? We're going to find out because DJ Fat Tony joins me now. Hi, Katie. How are you doing? Did you like that? (laughs) (laughs) It's really really funny when people start reading stuff that you've done or about you, you know, your bio. Kind of like always makes me think it should be my obituary. (laughs) <laughs> Do you get what yeah, I mean? It's, well, it's mad, isn't it? it? And you're still quite young. It's quite a mad oh, life. Oh, thank you. I, I, well, I kind of still feel 16. Kind of, really, you know, when you. Good. Well, that's because when you go into addiction, you kind of stay at that age that you started mm. taking drugs or the addiction started. So for me, I'm I'm always like a 16-year-old. I mean, you know, obviously. I wondered if you separated your life into two separate lives of like pre and post, like now you're sober. Mm. Is it the same person or is it is it two different people? Uh, it's, it's definitely the same person. You know, people always say to you, oh, you ain't changed. But you know what? It's kind of like... The, if you, you know, if you've got fruitcake and you take the alcohol out of fruitcake, what are you left with? Fruitcake. Mm. And it's kind of like, you know, my over the last 13 and a half years, I've changed in so many ways the fact that I've learned who I am, whereas yeah. before I didn't know who I was. I was trying to find that. And yeah. I guess if you're anaesthetised of a substance, you mm. don't ever get to know who you are or do the work because you're just putting, making that barrier, aren't you? Well, you're kind of just running away. You're just constantly running from any feelings or any responsibilities. So there's no time to learn. You know, mm. you, you, you learn, all you do is learn survival in that, in that state. Whereas today I, I, I learn and I, and I continue to learn because that's what recovery allows you to do. So, you know, uh, I'm forever finding out more things about myself as, as, as it goes on. Yeah. Mm. Do you know what amazes me about you is, you know, you've had this phenomenal career and in that intro, we only really touch on your achievements, but you've also had this huge addiction and normally in careers, addiction, you know, it destroys our career Mm. and it's the downfall of us, but it doesn't feel like that was the case for you. I kind of, you know, uh, it was because, you know, we, we, it's been like the rise and fall and rise again, you know, Mm. it's, uh, you know, addiction, at the beginning, wasn't addiction. It was, you know, it was partying and it was drug taking, and it was, 
it was everything that went with the career of being a DJ and I was flying the world and doing everything and working all over uh, and building that up and building that up. But as that went up, so did my so did my drug intake and my alcohol intake. And, of course, mm. what happens is when you get an addiction, it, it overtakes everything else. So the career kind yeah. of went, never ever went away, it plateaued. It was always yeah. a ways and means for me to get more of anything that I had. Uh, and then, of course, towards the end of the addiction, you know, I was just doing, working to survive mm-hmm. uh, in the sense of I would, you know, do two sets, two or three sets a week, and that would allow me to to pay for all my drugs that I needed and everything else. And uh, and then after once I got clean, you know, it was about rebuilding that stuff. And the career kind of was put on hold. It kind of was really weird. It all kind of, I didn't DJ for a year or so, and then I started to rebuild and work out what I wanted to do. And it was taking it back back to basics about the, the true love of music that kind of enabled it all to completely spiral to where it is now. <laughs> That's my dog. <laughs> oh, bless him. He wants his dad back. Um, you know, you have truly gigged for some of the most famous mm. people in the world. You know, you talked about the Beckhams. Uh, there was Meghan and Harry's wedding. Um, I wondered if there'd been like a real career highlight for you and if there is anything unfulfilled in terms of the aspirations I've, of your I, career. I get asked this question a lot, what's the, what, what's the best gig you've ever done? And I kind of just think it's always say the same thing. It hasn't happened yet. Because you know what? There's always something else that comes along. You know, it could be the most mm. simplest of gigs that I've done and I just think, oh, my God, this doesn't get better than this. And then it could mm-hmm. be the most lamb, lavish, flamboyant gig that I've ever done. I'd find myself, you know, like last year in a revolving, 80-foot-high revolving red cube in the middle of Hyde Park DJing. And I just thought, oh, my God, this is insane. And then I'd be on a plane flying to Miami to do some somebody else's or working for Elton and just so many... I did, you know, doing the Rocket Man tour, like playing at all the premieres. I was like, wow. And then they Elton got me to fly and DJ at the Troubadour where he did his first yeah. gig. And it was a real, things like that are a real honour, a real honour. And it's like, you know, and I just, I sometimes I have to pinch myself and think, oh my God, you were like, I was homeless and toothless 13 years ago. Yeah. And now I'm doing it's all this true. amazing, incredible stuff. Sounds like a meme, but it's not. It's, it's so true, bad. you know. I had one yeah. pair of trainers that I'd stolen from someone's house the night before. Yeah. That was it. That was what I had, except for I had the love of people that wanted me to get well. And I have to remember and that. And that is thing. the important thing. And today, when I do all of this stuff, this work comes in and I'm truly, you know, I did, just did Victoria back of birthday party from my own back garden. That stuff don't Stunning. happen. Do you get what I mean? It's like you think, hang on, yeah, what's going yeah. on here? And, uh, you know, uh, yeah. and I did a, a, a private party the other week with Mark Wahlberg deep dancing in his kitchen mm. to be on Zoom. Like and I'm it. just like, what the, what is going yeah. on? But I, and also at the same time, I can go and do someone's, you know, someone's like christening or wedding, like friends. And, and those moments are so special mm. because you know what it is? The fact that people love me for what I do. And not I, who I am. Because you're a kind and good person. It's, it's amazing. You know, throughout yeah. lockdown, I was doing glitter box sets. You know, glitter box is this big club in Ibiza and in London, in England. And it's like, mm. you know, uh, and my my sets were being so well received. You know, I did, when the Mix Mag film came out, I did, they do a thing called The Lab where you go in and you DJ. And it's normally... Yeah. 
you know, the people that watch it are really like, you know, bedroom DJs that love to slag everyone off. And I just thought, yeah, critics, yeah the yeah. week before they'd had this, this gay club on there that had, had got so much homophobic abuse. And I rang the guys from Mixmag mm. and I said, what are we going to do? Because next week, I mean, the king of the gays is coming on me and if they're getting that abuse, what's going to happen? And I, I mm. was literally dreading it. All week long, the film came out on the first day. Yeah, the, it, it, the film, the day the film came out, it went boom, and I was just like, "Wow!" Then we did the lab, and the amount of love that I got, it made me cry for every day. I was like thinking, "Oh my god, I'm really, yeah. it, I, you know, just that acceptance of my career." You need to be kinder to you. I do. Yes, you're so talented I, and amazing. I, and- you know, I, I'm learning to do that slowly. At 13 and a half years, I'm just now learning to start being kinder to myself and to find time, more time for myself mm. because I've, I spend so much time on it. other people and sponsors and stuff like that or trying to work with, on other mm-hmm. stuff that I don't hold anything back for me and I certainly don't hold anything back for my relationship sometimes. And that's the most important yeah. thing in my life. But lockdown's taught it, us. Lockdown really has taught yeah. me that, that this situation, uh, wasn't lockdown wasn't a situation, it was a blessing for me to actually go back to realise yeah, that what I've got, i.e. with David and with Taylor, being at home with them was was priceless. Reset. And it really was. It really bonded mm. my relationship. And it just, yeah, yeah, the simple things, Katie. Do you know what? After 28 years of staying away for a week at a time and uh, pulling out your own teeth, I think your body could have done with a bit of downtime. You know that, so. right? <laughs> you know that. I, you know. Definitely. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this special episode of Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. The guests you heard from there were Bella Mackie, EJ Osborne, Jamila Jamil and DJ Fat Tony. And you can hear the full episodes along with loads more on all podcast platforms. I'll see you next time with a brand new episode. So hit subscribe and be the first to hear it. <laughs>